Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to this podcast from Ideas for Leaders. In today's show, I'm delighted to be in conversation with David Marquet. David has a fantastic story to tell of his time as commander of U.S. nuclear submarine, the USS Santa Fe, that he wrote a book about in 2013, Turn the Ship Around. It was that experience that changed his view of leadership and has led to his creation of a new leadership approach, intent-based leadership, where leaders devolve their thinking to their followers with remarkable results that I want to discuss with him today. David. Welcome to the Ideas for Leaders podcast. Thank you very much, Roddy. David, let's set the scene. Can you very quickly tell us the situation you encountered when you took over command of the USS Santa Fe? Yes, I can tell you the two halves of it. First, externally what happened was I was trained for a different submarine. And what happened at the last minute, just before I took command of the other submarine... And by the way, I was very excited because I was going to be a submarine captain. And this was my dream job. This is what I wanted to do. And at the last minute, my hopes just felt dashed because I wasn't going to the submarine. I'd spent 12 months training for it. I was going to the USS Santa Fe, which had the reputation as the worst performing submarine in the fleet. And they were re-enlisted. They, were, they set a record at how few people stayed in the Navy on the submarine. That's how bad it was. And what happened was the captain there quit a year early. So the Navy had this gap and they said, well, you've been through the school, albeit for a different submarine, you're going to go to the Santa Fe instead. And so that was sort of this external situation. Now, internally, I had been brought up through the Navy system of leadership, which I describe as no all tell all. In other words, the leader is the one who knows all the answers and the leader is the one who gives all the orders. And it sets up the sort of traditional leader-follower relationship, which cascades down through the organization. Now, that system has some strengths to it, but there's also some limitations. Number one is it's fragile because when the leader makes a mistake, it cascades down through the system, which is exactly what happened to me. And I jokingly say when I went to the Santa Fe, I practiced no not, but tell all leadership because I didn't know the specifics of the ship, but I still, because I was the captain giving all the orders. And our very first day at sea, we ran an exercise on ourselves. And, uh, you know, remember, I just took over the worst performing ship. and We have five months before we're going to go on deployment. So I'm feeling like I'm going to stress the team, train them hard. And we shut down the reactor deliberately in, as a test for ourselves to see um, if we can find the problem and get the reactor started back up again. And I gave an order about operating a, a, a piece of equipment, a suggestion, actually. I gave a suggestion to the officer of the deck, which turned out not to be applicable on my ship. Essentially, I was asking him to shift into fifth gear on a car that only had four gears. And I didn't know that because all my other submarines had five gears, but this one only had four. He orders it. But then the sailor just sort of is paralyzed and doesn't do anything because the sailor knows there's no fifth gear. And uh, so I asked him that. I said, well, Captain, there's no fifth gear on the ship. 
And it was sort of very matter of fact, but it was really embarrassing. And then I looked at the officer and said, well, did you know this? He said, well, yes, sir, I did. So he knew it, but he still gave the order. And and I said, well, I explain this to me, like, and, and because the whole thing is about doing what you're told and the whole structure is about compliance. Now, in the past, whenever I'd given a bad order, my solution was just give better orders in, in this in the paradigm of leaders to give all the orders, then when the leader gives bad order, you got to give better orders. But there was no way I could learn the complexity of a nuclear submarine in any kind of a short time frame. And we were all going to die because eventually I would give an order that really mattered. This thing, nothing really happened here, but I was going to, I would give an order. And we know situations, we have accidents in the Navy where captains gave bad orders and the crew followed it, knowing that things were amiss and this is the path that we were going to head down. So I got my guys together and said, look, we can't lit, we can't operate with the structure anymore. What are we going to do? And my instinct was the problem was out there, that they needed to speak up. They needed to be proactive. They needed to take initiative. And finally, someone reflected the mirror back onto me and said, well, what? it's about you, Captain. If you're running around telling us what to do, you're really not giving us the airspace for this. So why don't you just be quiet? Shut the F up. <laughs> and and I thought about that for a minute and it was a, a, sort of an insubordinate thing to say. But I think, well, I'm now convinced that person was right. And I said, you know, I think you're right, because if I'm leaning into you, I'm giving you no space to lean forward back into me. So I need to actually suppress my appetite, my desire to run around, tell people what to do. And so I made a deal. I'm never going to tell you give another order. Now, I, I still retain control of the submarine in terms of the structure and how we operate it. But as much as possible, I tried to resist telling people what to do. And what happens is when you lean back, then you create the space for your – it's almost like you're creating a vacuum. And the, and the crew will naturally lean forward into me. And so the word we used was intent. I intend to. People would not. We stopped saying it was it was a very sort of program, programmatic language approach. There was no posters, no change process. I never told people to, quote, be empowered. I just say, say these words, say, I intend to. And then whatever you've decided to do, I intend to submerge the ship. I intend to launch the product on time. I intend to incorporate these features on the product. I intend to start up the reactor, whatever it happens to be. Um, don't bring me problems without solutions, just say what you intend to do. And it turned out to be very, 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 very powerful. That's really interesting. It's essentially, it's a, it's a big culture change. It's changing the environment that people are working within. But if I understand correctly, what you're saying is that other than that phrase, you didn't actually ask them to do anything differently. Well, we did do a couple things different. So there were a couple sort of phases to this transformation, but it started with the phrase. And I now say uh, for any kind of change process, we act our way to new thinking or we act our way to the new culture. We don't think our way to the new culture. So in other words, most change process fail because we try and give people a lecture and we try and convince them they need to change. And then we put some posters on the wall and there's no real change. And what we say is, uh, and, and we've seen this work in organizations over and over again now, which is just take some small thing and practice that activity. 
And what happens is with the activity, you actually change your thinking. It actually rewires your brain in a different way. That's the way real change works. Uh, another example is we had a lot of they's on the submarine. We had they's engineering, operations, maintenance, supply, and then we had they's by rank. We had the enlisted troops, the chiefs, the officers, and you know me, right? So we had all these segmented days. And, and, and there, if you just listen to the conversation sure. in a meeting or as people were talking, you would hear things like, well, they didn't approve it, or they made this decision, or they didn't get the part, or, or they, you know, whatever. And so it was all this day. We're, and so we're talking about everyone who lives within 100 feet of each other within a submarine. And so we forbid the word they. You couldn't use the word they. You, you had to say we. When, so for anyone on the submarine, you had to say the word we. So we started saying, well, we, engineering would say, well, we ordered the wrong part, not they, the supply department ordered the wrong part. And what happened was very remarkable. Over the next six months, we, we rewired our brains so that we felt like we. Initially, engineering and supply did not feel like we. But after six months of referring to the other side as we, then they felt like we. And so I, when I go into organizations now, I just listen for I call it the we we they boundary because the we they boundary is the definition. It's the team boundary. There's cooperation within the we they we they boundary, and there's competition without. And so the idea is expand the we they boundary by referring to the next borderline group of people, the next tribe, the tribe of the next valley. Let's start referring to them as we, and that's what happens. So so yeah, it's an action. We activate a new thinking. And that's how you have these cultural changes. Now, I didn't know it at the time, but I didn't have time. I was, it was a panic, basically. I didn't have time. Um, and remember, my mindset was I was so deeply immersed in this idea that I had to tell everybody what to do. I was the problem because I kept, you know, whenever I get stressed, I was like, oh, just do this. Come on, guys, just do it. Um, and um, I would always revert back to bad behavior. And so it was an issue of me. Uh, inoculating my team against that bad behavior. But a lot of it is about giving permission, isn't it? It's giving permission for other people to take responsibility for their immediate actions. What you had to do was have the self-discipline to allow that to happen. Presumably by you doing that and doing that visibly, that creates the uh, environment where other people can do it too. So, so your ability to do it successfully was extremely important. Right. So what happens is, so think about the people that like the, the, the officers right below me. So in the old way, their thinking was basically directed downward. It was like, okay, how do I get my, what do I, what does my team need to do and how do I get them to do it? And how frequently do I have to check off on them? Now they had to direct their thinking upward because they were, had, they had to come to me. They would come to me with a problem or they would come to me at the beginning of the watch and they say, Captain, I've taken the watch. And they always say, so, well, you know, what are the, what's the plan? Like, tell me what you need me to do with the submarine over the next six hours. And I'm just like, I'm not. You tell me how you intend to use the submarine over the next six hours. And initially, as you can imagine, there was a lot of sort of blank looks. And But, you know, we talked through it. We worked through it. So what happens is. When your thinking starts now directing upward, so you're thinking like your boss and your boss is what you don't have. You don't have time to worry about your team. And so you sort of naturally creates this vacuum where your team is like, well, we'll fill in the blank. It's like and so they're like, I team, I need you to tell me how we're going to achieve this 
I can't run. I don't have enough brain space to figure because I'm doing the captain's thinking now. I don't have enough brain space to do his thinking and your thinking. So <laughs> and so what happens is basically you invite everyone to the higher level and you start thinking in the in the Royal Navy. You guys have a phrase. It's like we're thinking two decks up. I got to be two decks up. Right. So the enlisted guys would be thinking like the chiefs, like the officers, like the like the captain. And it's this thinking that that wins. So in the old way, think about an industrial uh, uh, era factory. Most people are there for the doing. They're not there for the thinking. A small select group is doing the thinking and the decision making. The rest of people are doing the doing. We have a word for this. We call it all hands. Let's let's have an all hands meeting. I was at a software company two weeks ago in California, big software company, one of the fastest growing companies in America, and they had an all hands meeting. Why an all hands meeting? Because we used to hire people for their hands, not their heads. But even now in a software company, (laughs) they're hired for their heads, but our language still holds us back to the industrial revolution. And we're still calling it an all hands meeting. We don't even realize that these these rituals and these habits are anchoring us in the past. And so we have to deliberately shed them and think about new ways. I love that. But I I think there's also the element by having to articulate out loud what you're going to do makes you think about it in a different way too. Just just the very act of saying out loud, I intend to do X, Y, or Z. And that clarifies your own thinking as much as clarifying it for other people, I suspect. Yeah, and the communication was was key. I, I thought I intent was the sweet spot between high levels of communication, but also high levels of engagement and ownership by the, by the crew. So, and, and sometimes someone would come up to me and say, I intend to blah, 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 blah. And they say, hold on a second. <laughs> Maybe not. Like, I wouldn't even say anything. And they're like, oh, thanks for helping me with that. <laughs> like, I didn't say anything. But just, you're right, just articulating it out loud, looking at another person's face as you're talking, and, and that was not the end of the story. I could ask questions, and my questions tended to be on two different, uh, two different types of questions. I started with basic safety and technically technical questions like, okay, I, I intend to submerge the ship. Is the, are the hatches shut? Are the men below? Or is the ship prepared to submerge? Blah, blah, blah. And they would say, well, yes, yes, yes. Okay, so since you know I'm going to ask that, and that's part of submerging, why don't you just tell me at a time? So that just became part of the dialogue. Then it's like, well, why? Why are we submerging? Like, well, how did you pick this time, this place? And then they would have a conversation about that. Now, these were very important conversations because it, un- it linked their actions and decisions to the objectives of the organization. I call it organizational clarity. So it, it was in un- unpacking these and making these things which were previously uh, invisible I call it making the invisible visible, right? In, in, in the past, as a captain, you could get away with, like, drive the ship here and submerge at 10 o'clock. And the, the reason and the thinking behind that could be uh, opaque to most, most of the crew because you could just give an order and then they wouldn't necessarily need to know. But now we were making all those sort of opaque, all those opaque rationales visible for everybody because it was out there in the air 
And it was really powerful because now the junior most sailor could say, you know what? I heard you guys talking about this. If you really want to do that, I have an idea, blah, 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 blah. And it was really just unbelievably um, amazing, the turnaround. The ship, like, the ship won awards. First of all, the very next year, every sailor who had a chance to stay in the Navy did. So we had three, 35 out of 35 as opposed to three out of 35. And the second thing is we won, we, the ship was evaluated, got the highest score in the history of the Navy for operating the ship. And this is a ship that a year before was, was broken, basically. And it wasn't because I was giving great orders. It was because the, we went from one thinking person and 134 hands to 135 act. We went to, we, we went to 135 active thinking decision-making. Yeah. Fantastic. Is there a risk, though? Um, I mean, presumably, when you take, took the boat out or when you're in operations, that things need to happen very quickly sometimes. And, and, and so there are presumably moments when um, a more command and control classic style is required. Does this approach allow you to, to drop that in in a moment of crisis? Yeah. So first of all, if in this environment, if you do have to give orders, you give orders. Um, and the crew's actually more likely, I think, to follow him because it's like, whoa, he's telling us what to do. It must be really serious. I will say, though, that the more complicated and the more time urgent something is, the better this actually works. Most people think, oh, in a crisis or in combat, I go back to the old way. Maybe. Here's why. Um, for your listeners, I want you to think about a, a two-dimensional graph. And on the vertical axis, we have... Uh, we're going to call it control or empowerment. So at the top, we have more empowerment, more control. We're giving our people more control. And the other dimension is there, we're going to put two things on the other dimension, competence and clarity, technical competence and organizational clarity. So what happens is we think there's like a 45-degree line for a sweet spot. So if you want to give a lot of control, the team needs to be highly competent and highly under, highly understand what you're trying to do. If your team does not really understand what they're doing or doesn't have a lot of confidence, then you can't give a lot of control. So what happens in an emergency is there's a lack of clarity or competence. And it's that. So in other words, we're, we're thrown into a situation the team hasn't prepared for. They haven't thought for. No one really knows what's going on. No one knows what we're trying to achieve. And it's this lack of competence and clarity which forces the leader down to the bottom and they because they need to start giving orders. Otherwise, it's just a mess. If you, I mean, if you have to give orders, give orders. But it's not because it's fast moving. It's because we're in a situation where the team has a low level of competence and clarity. I can give you an example from fighting fires on board the submarine. We never had a fire on the, sh on the ship, but we did a lot of fire drills. And in the old way, we would say something like Chief Jones uh, report with the thermal imager. That was a piece of device to the engine room. In other words, we were directing people what to do. And, uh, but it was very fragile because if Chief Jones had broken his leg or he's trapped on the other side of the fire, he never showed up. So what we shifted it to was a thermal imager is needed in the engine room, no order, just information. And then a crew member sitting next to the thermal imager would just grab it and go and say, Seaman, Seaman Smith, reporting to the engine room with a thermal imager. So we had to change all that. We ended up with, we ended up winning awards for how we could fight fires because we had a much more resilient 
uh, team. Fantastic. Yeah. So, and, and it's that we thing as well, isn't it? Yeah. Well, you know, the, he, he, here's the other thing. I, I had a benefit that most most of the people that are listening aren't don't, which is in a submarine, you all die together. Like you either all come home or you all die. That's that's how how it is. Every once in a while, there could be some sort of uh, an accident where where you don't. But basically, everyone's ultimate uh, objective is the same: that we have that we all come back alive. So, but in a business, I've seen bad behavior where where people are like, "Well, no, this is just for me. I want to bump my bonus at the expense of the other team, and you know, whatever." So there's some bad behavior. And that takes me onto a question I have here, which is you know, organizations rarely have such clear objectives as a naval ship. So and how does this approach transfer into large organizations where roles and, and objectives may be a lot fuzzier than they are in a, in a military operation? So the reason why they're fuzzier is not because they're fuzzier. It's because we haven't articulated them. Uh, that's, that's my, uh, I, I'm pretty firmly believe that uh, operating a submarine. Like if you go back and operate the reactor plant, it's pretty contained. It's, it, it, it follows, follows the laws of, of nature and physics. And there's not a lot of unpredictability uh, when you're in combat though, there's like a lot of uncertainty and ambiguity and the enemy is actively taking action to thwart whatever you're trying to do to them. So in, in combat, we need to be able to react and adapt in a way that's uh, in, in this environment where we, we can't say specifically, you know, go here, shoot the torpedo in this direction because we don't know what's going to look like. But in business, what I see is the leaders of the business are sort of fuzzy about what the mission is, uh, what we would call the mission. What are we trying to achieve? And then in the military, we have a statement called commander's intent, which at the high level, you would write a statement about here's what we're trying to achieve. Here are the resources that we have. And it really the writing it down really forces you to be pretty clear about it. Um, a great book in the UK or the art of action by Stephen Bungay talks about this idea of commander's intent and how it can be applied to uh, business. But the idea is if you're not clear, if you, it's cause it puts more burden on you, the leader, cause your guys are going to come to you and say, well, what exactly it is that you want to achieve? And you're going to be frustration, frustrated because in your head, you're like, this is really simple. I can see what I'm, we're trying to get done, but you forget that that picture is not in their heads. And so, so I have a, no, I see that. Yeah. So I'll give you an ex another short story is I have a, a CEO client in India and he's building a brand and he's building a retail brand like um, coach or Tiffany and brands like that aren't really well known in India. So he doesn't, he doesn't have a cadre. If he were in Paris or Milan or someplace where there's a fashion capital, he, there would be a cadre of people who would understand what branding was. So he's saying, you know, he has a picture of what it looks like in his head, but his team only has sort of this fuzzy notion. So it's, he's, he's really having to work hard to describe what this thing, what a brand is. What does it look like on the website? What does it not look like? 
And how do people act when people go into their stores? What do they, how does it not act? Um, because if he doesn't do that, what happens is he's micromanaging every little thing. I know you're traveling but you're all the time, um, but do you encounter different reactions to intent-based approach across different cultures? I and mean, there's an example of an Indian one. Uh, are there some where it is already quite well present and, and others where you just don't think it would work? You know, I'm really sort of skeptical of these sort of cultural stereotypes. Uh, I, I'm not saying they don't exist, but I've, I've seen people who, you know, in, in, like places that are, are, are pretty fertile ground for this are uh, U.S., U.K., the Netherlands, Denmark, uh, Western Europe, blah, blah, blah where uh, people are moving rapidly into knowledge-based organizations. Uh, but even there, you know, I find people like, well, convince me this is the right, like, I'm not going to convince you it's the right way to run your business. If you want to run your business like this, we can help you. I can't convince you that if, if, if you've gotten through life by always being the smart guy who's always had the right answer and you never made a mistake, I can't convince you that's probably a fragile system and you're going to get more out of life and your people will be happier I'm not going to convince you. Okay, but I've also been to China and uh, Singapore where I've had people say, uh, this is definitely how we need to run the organization. It's, you know, can, can you help us? So um, I've, I've seen both ways all, all, all around. Well, that's, that's very encouraging. Before we finish, David, can you share with us where we can find out more about intent-based leadership? Uh, and if you've partners outside of the U.S. who you work with? Yeah, sure. Um, excited about that. So we have partnered with an organization there in Edinburgh called Remarkable. And so they're, they are the first certified partner to teach, coach, and observe and diagnose companies that want to move down this path of an intent-based leadership. So we'll shoot up an email uh, address here, but uh, you can contact those guys. I always recommend, hey, start with the book, turn the ship around. You can go to our website, davidmarquet.com. But another great resource is we have these, what we call leadership nudges, which are 60-second snippets of different things that we talk about. And you can go to our YouTube channel, Leadership Nudges, you can, and, and then you can check out. We have over 150 of these, and then we've got 20,000 leaders. Get them every Wednesday. You can enroll in our Leadership Nudge series and get these Leadership Nudges every Wednesday in your email. Fantastic. David, very many thanks for sharing your insights and experience with us. I think you're fashioning a really powerful 20